a half-decent life and doesn't wonder on a daily basis about the magnificence and irony of being a human being, I simply cannot comprehend. Life is too fantastic to ignore. Along this path of frustration and wonderment, I've been lucky enough to achieve what many consider to be a reasonable level of success in my professional life, if not in my personal life, or at least that's what I thought. I've since come to realise that real success is about the long term. There's no better way to prove yourself than to get better at what you do every day you do it. There's no question I've made at least as many bad decisions as good ones, probably many more. And there's plenty of evidence to prove it. Losing a bunch of money for a start, £67 million at the last count. Not that I have much to start with, so let's not dwell on that. But I have also learned that it only takes one good break to turn your life around and launch you into a stratosphere you never even dared dream of. If I had to sum up the difference between the good times and the bad times, the bottom line is that when I've put the effort in, I've reaped the rewards. And when I've failed to do so, my life has stalled. On several occasions, going into a complete flat spin. It really is as simple as that. As far as I can see, life is one big bank account. And the best philosophy is just to keep on making deposits whenever you can, be they financial, emotional, occupational or otherwise. This is the absolute number one way to reduce the risk of disappointment, unhappiness, poverty and loneliness. By rights, I'm not at all sure I should even still be here to tell my tale, but by the grace of God, I am. So here goes. Part one. Mum, dad and a girl called Tina. Top ten basic facts about Christopher Evans. Number 10. Born 1st of April 1966. 9. In Warrington in the northwest of England. 8. Mother Minnie, nurse. 7. Father Martin, wages clerk, former bookie. 6. Brother David, 12 years older, nursing professional. 5. Sister Diane, 4 years older, teaching professional. 4. Very bright. 3. Reluctant student. 2. Needed glasses but nobody knew for the first 7 years of my life, which meant I couldn't see a bloody thing at school, presuming this is what the world actually looked like. Number 1 had fantastically red hair. Life for me growing up was no great shakes one way or the other. We were an average working class family with an average working class life. We weren't poor, but looking back, we were much less well off than I'd realised. I was naught to start off with, but I quickly began to age and lived with my loving mum and dad, Minnie and Martin, and my elder brother and sister, David and Diane. Our house at the time was both a home and a business. We had a proper old-fashioned corner shop, like the ones you see on the end of a terraced row of houses, just like in Coronation Street, some of which had those over-shiny red bricks that looked more like indoor tiles. This is my first memory of one-upmanship. We never had those bricks, but what we did have was a thriving retail outlet. Our shop sold almost everything. At least that's what Mum says. Not like Harrods sell almost everything, like elephants and tigers and miniature Ferraris, but like a general store might sell almost everything, like chickens, shoelaces, cigarettes and licorice. I don't remember the shop at all, to be honest, but I do remember the tin bath that we all shared on a Sunday night in the living room behind where the shop was. It was a heavy old silver grey thing, rusty in parts, which was ceremonially plonked in front of the fire, for heat retention purposes, I assume, before being filled by hand with scalding hot water from the kettle boiled on the stove. This was then topped up with cold water via a big white jug, after which we took our turns bathing en famille. I also remember the outside toilet, the coal shed, Mr Simpson, the greengrocer and the rag and bone man, who I was a bit scared of. But if I'm honest, that's just about it. Apart from how upset Mum was when the council made a compulsory purchase, not only on our house and our shop, but on our whole street. Not to mention hundreds of other houses around where we lived. To make way for something so instantly forgettable, I've actually forgotten what it was. 
As a result of this compulsory order, we were forced to move to council housing and another part of town some three miles away, which for a working-class family was tantamount to emigrating to Australia. Although many years later, my brother did emigrate to Australia and he assured me it was not the same at all. For my part, I wanted to break free out of the council estate which we were forced to call home and where I was brought up mostly. From day one, I felt compelled to escape those grey concrete clouds of depression. The house we lived in was of no particular design. In fact, it was of no particular anything. It was more nothing than something. In short, it was not the product of passion. Council estates don't do passion, they just do numbers. The estate I lived on didn't even do bricks. Huge great slabs of pebble-prison walls have been slotted together in rows of mediocrity as an excuse for housing. Housing for people with more pride in the tip of their little finger than the whole of the town planner's hearts put together. People like my mum, who'd survived the war as a young girl, while simultaneously being robbed of her youth by having to work...